Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are on this fine day. My name is Ali Amagasu, and I'm welcoming you back to the Cloud Unfiltered podcast. This is our first episode from quarantine, which doesn't actually change a thing for us since we don't do the in-person interview thing, but uh, it does put an odd, odd stress on the network. Everyone is on the network, which uh, as Cisco, we appreciate. And we are doing everything we can to help with that. But I will tell you that right now I have two children in my home distance learning as I record a podcast where I'm having a video exchange with my co-host and the guests. So please forgive us if there's any audio weirdness. We are going to try to edit that out. But if something really juicy is said and there's audio weirdness, I'm keeping it. You're just going to have to suck it up, digest the material as it is. Anyway, Pete, how are you doing? You know, things are pretty much the same here in the underground nerd layer in middle of nowhere, Michigan. Like Costco is open, so it's all good. Right, you are in the middle of nowhere. You're perf- you're in the perfect place for a pandemic. It's probably not coming to you if you danced around in your yard and tried to get it. Well, the thing is, right, like beds per capita is pretty much the same anywhere in the country. Fair. So Fair. it's there are fewer people, but there are also fewer beds. So... You know, it's a give and take. Fair assessment. Well, I'm glad to hear you're okay. So we do have a guest today. It's not just me and Pete hanging out and BSing. And uh, we're thrilled that he's taking the time to join us in these in these very weird, weird times. I think all of our work schedules are a little funky right now. I'm happy to welcome Tyler McMullen. He's the CTO of Fastly. He's going to talk with us about all kinds of things today. But first off, welcome, Tyler. Hello, and thank you for having me. Sure, sure. You know, as usual, we did some reading up on you uh, to find out what you're into. You are a fairly, or you've been a prolific blogger, and you've talked about a lot of interesting things as far as open source communities and serverless and edge computing and WebAssembly, and it's all fascinating. So we'd like to talk to you about some of it. Pete, when you when you hear this list of interesting topics, what would you where would you like to, to start off questioning Tyler? Well, I'd like to start talking about like WebAssembly and its influence on the edge, I think. Tyler wrote a really nice blog article in December where he laid out some things that he's seeing in the industry. And the, the other things on that blog article were grassroots protocol deployment and encryption everywhere. But I guess, Tyler, if you could give us your take on, on WebAssembly and sort of what that is, where it's going, and, and what impact you think that might have on the edge. Yeah, I mean, this has been my like everything I've been like living and breathing for the past three years or so at this point. So I'd be more than happy to talk about that. Yeah, I guess to me, what is actually really interesting about WebAssembly, and this this will get back around to the edge thing momentarily, you know, it, it started as a way of attempting to get like, you know, legacy C programs typically onto into the web browser, right? But the way that the people who designed it went about this is that effectively what they did was they developed an intermediate language that we actually like that actually exists in every web browser now. It's not just about legacy or anything like that, right? Like so that the really neat thing that was done, the really neat thing that has come out of it is the fact that like we have possibly for the first time ever generally agreed upon an intermediate representation that multiple and many different languages will actually target that also provides a pretty decent level of safety and performance 
and also can run in a bunch of places, right? Like, so to me, this is like the first time in computing history that this has actually happened. And that's to me, the reason that I'm actually super excited about it. Like, so to me, like what this says is, okay, well, if this thing is designed to be able to run anywhere and it's designed to be safe to run anywhere, that means that we may actually have the beginnings of a platform that can be consistent across a whole bunch of different platforms, across a bunch of different places that you could run code, right? So for instance, like the browser is just the start of it. Obviously, like we at Fastly are working on like an edge computing story around this. Likewise, I also know people who are working on getting WebAssembly running natively inside of Kubernetes. I am friends with the people over at various companies that are working on WebAssembly inside of secure enclaves or WebAssembly on mobile devices, right? So like there's so many different applications of this. And so we have this opportunity right now where we can create, where we, we, we have the opportunity to create a platform that is actually consistent across all of these. And to me, that's super exciting. For those that don't know, and, and I'm uneducated on this as well, can you get into how WebAssembly accomplishes that? So in concept, it's similar to what we saw with Java bytecodes and the JVM going back 25 sure. years. And I mean, I, I turned 50 last month. I like to joke to people that I didn't learn Java in college because it hadn't been invented yet. So like I, I got to see this professionally <laughs> happen and, and try to convince ops people that JVMs weren't a performance overhead big enough to warrant concern. So, so are we seeing, I guess, can we get into some of the guts about how WebAssembly works and whether or not we're going to have to rehash some of these, um, these arguments that we've had multiple times about anytime you have some kind of abstraction that makes functionality portable, you inevitably are, are paying at least some performance penalty and how you get around some of those things. Sure, sure. Yeah, so the the relationship between like JVM bytecode and WebAssembly is something that actually comes up quite a bit, and it, it, it's it's there are interesting similarities and there are pretty like dramatic differences between them. So to me, like the you know obviously the similarities are you know it's designed to run anywhere, right? You know it's supposed to be portable across many different platforms. But to me, like the differences are actually more stark. So some of the things that jump out to me immediately are like the size of the WebAssembly specification is very small. There's also a specification for it, which is a pretty key difference, at sure. least from the early days of the JVM bytecode, right? And more than just a spec for it, there's also proofs of it. So we can prove the safety of like, uh, of the, so we can prove both the type safety and also the memory safety of the WebAssembly language itself, you know? So to me, like safety is probably, safety and like, you know, confidence in that safety are one of the biggest things. The other thing that's interesting about WebAssembly is that it doesn't actually have a lot of the like weirder, more dynamic features that you would find in like a typical language specific bytecode. So for instance, you know, there's, there's no way to do things like dynamic dispatch in WebAssembly, right? And that in some ways limits things at the moment, but what it also means is that it is the portability of the of the platform itself is much higher, right? It means that you can JIT it, you can sure. interpret it. I can also statically compile it ahead of time, which is what we're doing via uh, our Lucid project at Fastly at the moment. Yeah, I, I don't know if that totally answers your question, but that, that's kind of the way I look at it, is that it's like a safety and um, even greater portability sort of spin on it. I mean, I, sorry, I guess, I guess the one other thing with it is that 
JVM bytecode was really interesting because it has it ended up being used for a bunch of different languages ultimately. Like in the end, you know, if you look at what it's done today, you have Scala and you have Clojure and you sure. have Java still and and you know JRuby and so on. But that was a thing that happened over the course of many years, right? J JVM bytecode was really designed for Java, and I think like you know if you if you've dug into it, you probably know that really well. WebAssembly was made for the be like from the beginning to be portable across all these different languages. That's to me the other big difference. And are you finding is the community finding that the legacy applications you, you used a C example earlier? Anytime somebody starts yeah. talking about C, that the very first job I had out of college in 1993 was <clears throat> working at an R and D lab at HP, and we had this big C code base. And we would compile it on HP 3000s, but then we would link it on HP 9000s. And you had to have all that all that branching for your .h files at the beginning of Cs and, and things like that. So when we say legacy C applications, do we mean like that kind of spaghetti kind of stuff? Or does it mean if I wrote something for some embedded system, you know, maybe in the last 10 years, but not in the last 25 years, do I have a chance of running that on WebAssembly or, or how much surgery do I have to, to, to do to sort of splice it into this new model? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you're right. Legacy might actually be too strong of a term for this. It, it really is like surprisingly easy to port modern applications as well as like older applications. Like the entire okay. C standard spec works just fine in, in WebAssembly. And I hear you on the like large C code bases. A lot of Fastly is still in C, although we're kind of in the process of porting a lot of things uh, or rewriting things in Rust at this point. Again, for safety purposes, but C is definitely still alive and kicking. For me to understand the bigger picture, if you can take a, just a little bit of a step back, you talked a little bit about how WebAssembly was used initially, but how is it used ideally as we move forward? Like what would be the goal? Like, it, and, and is there a lot of energy behind this or are you kind of part of a small band with a big dream that it goes in that direction. <laughs> so to me, the ideal use for WebAssembly is, is one where it actually kind of disappears into the background, where it's the basis for a lot of platforms and a lot of people are using it, but they don't necessarily know they're using it. Like to me, it, it's kind of funny at the moment, like, you know, people talk about WebAssembly a lot. Obviously I am doing that and I do that frequently, but you know, in some ways it's similar to someone talking about like x86 assembly code. Right. That's not a thing that you have to think about all that frequently anymore. And the fact that like we're not talking about it kind of indicates probably what the future of WebAssembly becomes in an ideal world where it just fades into the background. It's just part of the like the ether of computing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. As for like, you know, am I part of a small small band or a large group? I think there's I think there's kind of two sides to this one. The the WebAssembly community as a whole is is surprisingly large at this point. There's a lot of people doing a lot of interesting things with it now. Um, that said, obviously, like we uh, maybe maybe you saw the post about this. We founded uh, an organization called the Bytecode Alliance with along with Mozilla, Intel. Yeah, along with Mozilla, Intel, and Red Hat back at the end of last year. And kind of one of the reasons that we did that is kind of to drive this like multi-platform WebAssembly everywhere sort of vision for it. And so a lot of the stuff that we're working on right now is the the infrastructure to allow that to happen. So like Mozilla contributed something called Wasm Time, which is a JIT, a JIT-based WebAssembly runtime and compiler. That's backed by a project called CraneLift. CraneLift is 
also embedded into Firefox. So if you're using Firefox, I believe it's on nightly and possibly beta at this point. I'd have to confirm that, but then you are actually using Crane Lift. And that is the same thing that's driving Fastly's new computed edge platform. We have our Lucid project, which uses CraneLift behind the scenes. So, you know, Fastly is actually running the same, you know, basically we're using the same compiler that uh, that that Firefox is at this point. Likewise, Intel has brought along their um, their Whammer project, which is at the WebAssembly micro runtime. And uh, Red Hat is working on something for secure enclave WebAssembly computing, right? So like we're we're kind of trying, what we're what we're really attempting to do with this is to like you know, create a space where many different types of platforms can develop things that interoperate really well. Nice. So it doesn't sound like it's a, a tiny band. It sounds like there's some significant energy behind it. Is there any competing effort to kind of standardize or to, to move behind something similar to, to WebAssembly? Or does this seem like an obvious, the obvious direction that things should go? That's an interesting question. I, I don't really know of any other like competing things for that at the moment. Like it's a relatively small group of people that are working on this specific thing. I think a lot of the other folks in the WebAssembly community are still focused on like the browser side of things, which is also important, right? Like that is where the majority of developers write the majority of their code now. It runs in the browser, right? And so like getting a really good story around how to use WebAssembly in the browser is probably, you know, one of the most important things. We're just focusing on the other side of it. Makes sense. I know I derailed your technical line of questioning. Did you have more that you wanted to cover there? Yeah, I'm I'm real anxious to know how Fastly is now going to try to use this this paradigm on on the edge. What what we're doing at the edge with WebAssembly is we're actually basing our computing system on WebAssembly. So Fastly, like very, from the very beginning, has always allowed some level of computation on our network um, that was done via the VCL, the Varnish Configuration Language, since like the earliest days of the company back in 2011. So a few years back, we had the realization that we really wanted to allow our customers to do like much more complex things with it. But how are we going to do that in a way that is both highly performant and also safe, you know? And so when we went down this path, I tried a bunch of different ways of doing this. I tried like, you know, let's let's embed V8, let's embed like the V8 JavaScript engine into our server. And that's fine. Like, and that is certainly what a lot of companies are doing at this point. I was not pleased with the performance of that sort of setup. I think that like it makes the wrong trade-offs for this type of application, for the types of applications that we see running at the edge. And so I started going down like a more interesting path. Because, okay, so there, I guess there's one other thing about that is that like a lot of times when you you end up with this safety versus performance trade-off. And so the way that a lot of these systems, if you're using, say, like, you know, Docker containers or V8 or one of these other like larger, more intense sorts of like virtual machines or, or abstractions of virtual machines, essentially, you end up having to make this interesting trade-off where you say, okay, you know, I'm going to spin up this sandbox for this thing to run in. And spinning up that sandbox is actually really expensive to do. And so you end up keeping the sandbox around and one user comes in and uses the sandbox and they're done with it. And the next user comes in and uses the same sandbox. And to me, from like a security perspective, that always struck me as like a little bit like nerve in, nerve inducing. It's like, okay, well, how do I know that there wasn't something left behind? What about the like the privacy of the user that came before them? What about the safety of them? And so what we ended up, the reason that we ended up going with WebAssembly for this, or one of the key reasons was that we could actually not have to make that performance versus safety trade-off. One of the ways, one of the ways that, one of the things that is interesting 
about WebAssembly to me is that it is actually really easy and really trivial if, if you are statically compiling it to make sandboxes of WebAssembly start really, really fast. So like Lucid's big contribution at this point is the fact that we can start a sandbox in about 35 microseconds or, or thereabouts, mm. right? And so it kind of completely changes things. It means that what we can do is we can say, okay, as the request is coming into our network, as any end user request is coming into the network, it means that we can spin up one of these little secure sandboxes for that specific request. So every individual request is sandboxed individually. So they're um, not tracing so, in and out of the same sandbox? Is that the, is that the takeaway? Exactly, right. And it's a thing that like most developers probably don't even think about. They're like, oh, you know, like it's a sandbox, whatever. Uh, when we're talking, like when we're coming at it as like an infrastructure provider, like Fastly, like that's that's something I have to care about, right? Anyway, this is all a long way of saying what we're doing with it is building a like generalized edge computing platform that attempts to not make the trade-off between safety and performance is ultimately like where I'm going with that. I like the sandbox example. That helps me a lot. That helps me understand a very, you know, a very tangible security issue that I am sure tons of companies let people just trot in and out of the sandbox and leave all kinds of data and open stuff behind. Exactly. Like a, a lot of times people make the assumption that the thing that we would like to protect is outside of the sandbox. So you're trying to keep the user in the sandbox to protect something outside of the sandbox. But if you're reusing sandboxes, there could be things that are valuable left behind by previous users of that. So this is a way that we are hoping to protect our own infrastructure while also protecting your users. It's leaving your Gmail account open on the hotel you know, computer when you have like some <laughs> random situation where you need to log on to that central hotel you know, PC, which right. just happened to me recently. And I darted out the door, got on a shuttle bus and had to make the shuttle bus turn around because I was like, I left my Google browser open. Did I hear that correctly? Did you say 35 microseconds? Yeah, on the on the high end. Yeah, that's about right. So it, and and so what what do you get in that? What does that sandbox include for that? And I'm 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 leading leading you out there on that to try to make a comparison to something else. Sure, fair enough. So this is a sandbox in a like a very different way than one might imagine, like say like a, a virtual like a you know proper virtualization or like a Docker container or something like that. So what, what you get with this is you get memory safety and control flow safety for the most part. So what it means is that, you know, one of these sandboxes can be spun up inside of a process that is already existing. Um, you might be able to spin up like hundreds or thousands, or in our case, like maybe tens of thousands of these things inside the same process. And the guarantees that you get are that, you know, Given that you have given it a specific amount or a specific area of memory to work in, and given that you have told it like, okay, here are the functions and the areas of, uh, of code that you're allowed to call, you can be you can be assured that like it will not break out of those two things, right? Those are the like the key the key points of that one anyway. So do, so do you get a language runtime with that of your choice, or it sounds like you don't get a full Linux kernel for something like that? No, so that's actually to me like one of the more interesting parts of this is that effectively, like you are making the process that is running the sandbox the kernel to that sandbox. Right. If that makes any sense. No, it does. Right. Like, I mean, as long as you have a language okay. runtime and you have some way of, given given that life that lifetime, you probably don't get like, you, you can't do like an f dot open like you don't get have file access, but you presumably could make REST API calls outside of your sandbox. Is that a valid assumption? 
kind of actually. So it's a little bit different than that. So like the when okay, let's use Rust as an example. So when Rust compiles, when Rust compiles to either you know x86 or whatever else or WebAssembly, it doesn't actually have an external runtime. Like it's not a managed language in that way, in the same way that like C or C++ are not managed languages, right? So it's all actually embedded into the uh, compiled code. And so what that code interacts with is actually a lot more like an fopen sort of thing, right? So when you're compiling it to WebAssembly, Rust currently targets something called WASI, which is the WebAssembly system interface. It's kind of like, it's kind of like POSIX for WebAssembly right now. Okay. Um, and that's kind of that's kind of the, the start of where we're going with it. But I, I kind of see where you're going with the language runtime side of it. This kind of only works for unmanaged, statically compiled languages at the moment. And so um, I'm happy to talk about where WebAssembly is going with that as well, like to to embrace more dynamic languages, if you would like. Pete, what are you well, comparing that 35 microseconds to? Should I be, is that fancy? Should I be in awe over the 35 microseconds or should I, well, you know? So, so I, I routinely make this comparison in in talks that I give, you know, in in and out of Cisco. That it used to be when I first started in '93 doing this professionally. If you wanted a new unit of compute, the turnaround time for that was months because you had to order a new physical server. And then in the late '90s, we got virtualization, which was originally designed for the CFOs of the world, so we could get better utilization out of the physical hardware we already bought, but do so in such a way such that if I was a bad actor, that I don't wreck Tyler's process. So we invented the hypervisor, and we now all of a sudden could get units of compute in minutes instead of months. And then somebody, somebody realized, hey, there's this resource separation me mechanism built into the Linux kernel already, and if we eliminated the hypervisor, we could create new units of compute in seconds instead of minutes. And that's what a container is. And then AWS said, well, if you are very specific, if you have, a, if you, if you, instead of having hypervisors on top of generic compute, if you had specific hypervisor on top of a specific compute, you can have Firecracker, which gets you a unit of compute in milliseconds. And that's the basis for AWS Lambda. So for Tyler to sit here on this call and tell me that they've cracked it down to 35 microseconds, so like 3.5 milliseconds, that's then taking that same, you know, when I started it was months, and now he's telling me it's three and a half milliseconds. So like that's that's a continuum along this line of how long does it take to create a unit of compute? So really what I was trying to hit Tyler with is, okay, if you're getting it down to 3.5 milliseconds, what am I losing? Like what what do I get in that unit of compute compared to, you know, this this full Linux shell I can get on Firecracker and AWS. So I should be impressed, yeah. but I could also be suspicious. Entirely <laughs> fair. So for the record, Pete, it was actually uh, 0.035 milliseconds. Oh, I'm, I'm making, I'm, I'm not doing the decimal place moving in my head correctly. <laughs> it's so, totally fine. So forgive yeah, yeah, yeah. So 0.035 milliseconds. The so I think the reason and like you know if if I heard someone say this like a couple of years ago before we like started developing this thing I would be like that person is full of it I don't believe a word that they're saying <laughs> though I think I think I can convince you that I'm not full of it though so um, the difference between something like a like a firecracker or like a you know containers in general versus a WebAssembly sandbox to me is about the assumptions that you can make 
about the code that is running inside of it, right? So if you look at the way a container or a, you know any any of the process level isolation primitives work, is that they make the assumption that like what is running inside of them cannot that you can't actually make any guarantees about it. That it could try to do anything in the world, right? That it could attempt to like you know call whatever syscalls. It could attempt to um, you know run like assembly operations that it's not actually that you don't want to allow it to. And so you have to put a lot more safeguards in place to prevent it from doing those things, right? So the thing with WebAssembly is that when you look at the way like Lucent works is that it's it's more of a collaboration between the compiler, like the WebAssembly compiler and the runtime. So we make, so when we compile something with Lucent, we say, okay, here is all the native machine code. It has been compiled such that as long as you follow this contract that is also like included with the binary, as long as you follow this contract and say like, you know, it, this needs this amount of, you know, physical memory, it needs this amount of virtual memory and this many guard pages, and it needs to be spun up in these specific ways. If you can like actually follow this contract, then I can guarantee that this is safe. And so ultimately what it ends up meaning is that as long as you have those, those specific things in place, like you actually have to do very, very little to spin one of these up, right? So it's essentially like, you know, allocate the memory and jump into it, ultimately. So, so again, like going back to this comparison of, say, be between a container and a serverless runtime, what you typically lose there is specifically file management and more generally state management, right? Every time, every time a serverless runtime spins up your unit of compute, you have no state whatsoever and you potentially have to reload it from a database or some other remote source. Whereas yeah. in a container, you've got you've got volumes that are attached storage that you could potentially use to carry state from invocation to invocation. So when, when we're taking this to WebAssembly, wh what is the thing, is there something else I'm losing to, to get this microsecond based startup time? Where, whereas, you know, between container and serverless runtime, I'm, I'm giving up file access, essentially. So is there, is there something else I'm giving up in, in WebAssembly to sure. get that insane speed? Because I, I can see plenty of use cases where if you just need to, you know, if you just need to transform some piece of data that comes in to you and you, you don't need outside state to help you do that, then, yeah, I would absolutely do that for the 35 milliseconds. But there's other use cases where I still need state. Can I make an HTTP call to a NoSQL server somewhere to get something about my state and then use that as part of this data transformation, for example? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes a ton of sense. So, so there's a couple of things that you're giving up. One of them is like, you know, WebAssembly gets fairly close to native speeds, but it's not actually as fast as native speed. Like it's almost there, but it's it's not. Right. You know, there are safety guarantees that we have to build into like the generated. Sure, code. sure. So, you know, making bounds checking and, and things like that um, to make sure that you can't break out of it. The other thing that you end up giving up or, well, this is this is kind of an interesting one because it's not so much giving up as there there aren't. Okay, let me step back. So in the same way that you would give up like file system access inside of like a typical serverless environment, inside of a typical WebAssembly environment, that kind of thing is sort of undefined. And that is where the WASI thing comes in. And that is trying to define that interface. And so, so for instance, uh, on like the Fastly platform at the moment, it is stateless as you go, as you spin up all of these individual sandboxes, right? 
you do have file system access, or what you have actually is something that looks like file system access. You have a virtual file system of some kind. And so one of the neat things about the fact that the process that the sandbox is embedded into becomes the kernel to that little sandbox is that you kind of get to define what that means. So the embedder, mm. like the person who is like creating the WebAssembly runtime that you're that you're running on, gets to define what it means to open a file. So if I say, you know, maybe I want to say, you know, I, I want to let I want to let this um, this user log things out to some logging provider, right? What I could do is make a file, a quote unquote file, on their virtual file system that is slash log slash my logging provider. And if you open that and write to it, like my host code gets to say what exactly that means. And so it could say, okay, cool. They wrote something to this file. So what that means is I need to send it out to their logging provider, for instance. Uh -huh. So that you get a lot of I flexibility, <laughs> but you also get a certain level of like undefined nature to the beast. Got it. <laughs> well, and I, I would imagine too, there's issues with what, what's the consistency level of that write. And does that mean the same thing on different systems, you know, strong versus eventual? Yeah, yeah. And so that's kind of one of like the one of the downsides to like such an early stage project. Like WebAssembly, web, excuse me, WebAssembly has been around for a little while now, but like trying to run WebAssembly outside of the browser is a relatively new concept. And so we're still kind of in the early days of trying to define like the semantics of what a lot of these things mean. Got it. No, just that's a super interesting space. Like, I would totally lead with the thirty-five microseconds startup time. That that just that blows <laughs> me away. That completely blows me away. Thank you. I uh, appreciate that. Tyler, can you just tell me what do you guys do? What is what is the summary of what Fast, <laughs> Fastly is and does? Yeah, so Fastly is an edge cloud. And so we, we kind of started out as like a smart CDN of sorts. You know, we, we define ourselves as an edge cloud now, and that is like what we have been from the beginning. But essentially what it means is that we provide services that allow people to deliver content and logic all around the world as fast as possible. So, you know, that ends up looking like the fact that we have a like massive global network of servers that does, you know, you know terabits upon terabits of traffic these days. Um, and the, the whole idea with it is that like we we have from the beginning from the beginning been trying to make it possible to move for for our customers to move some of the logic that only has existed inside of their centralized data centers out toward their users, right? And so again, I, I don't know. This kind of comes back to like you know what what is the edge, right? We and love to me, like about that, people will fight for hours about what the edge is. So absolutely. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I have been fighting for my definition for like eight years now, and I'll, I'll continue fighting for mine. Like I actually define it in a much more like broad and abstract way that like typically like in computing paradigms, we have had like you have your client and you have your origin, you have your server. And like typically people don't think about the fact that like there are there are like tons of other hops in between where computation could happen, right? And so to me, rather than defining the edge as like, one arbitrary position within that chain. I like to define it as like kind of the entire chain in between, right? To me, the edge could actually fit into any one of these things. So a lot of what Fastly has done is attempt to make it possible for people to take things that were on one end of this and move it toward the other to make, you know, their systems more resi resilient, to make their like their users latency like lower and so on, right? Great. That's a great definition of the edge. That is one that has not been lobbed out on our show yet, I think I can safely say. So I'm glad you shared it. 
thanks so much for spending time with us today. I know things are hectic at our company right now. They're probably hectic at yours, but we appreciate you taking time to, uh, to, to chat us up, and we hope you'll come back in the future. Thank you for having me.